Welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. On today's show, we have Terry McGowan. Trying to get Terry for a long time. He's been involved in illuminating engineering, lighting design, lighting education, and lighting research for a long time. His career is over 60 years, includes GE at Nello Park, where both Greg and I went early on in our career for education. In 1998, he started his own consulting company, Lighting Ideas, Inc., and became involved in lighting research as a director of the Lighting Research Office for the Electric Power Research Institute. These days, in addition to consulting work, he acts on behalf of the American Lighting Association as their Director of Engineering and Technology and is the Executive VP of the J.H. McClung Lighting Research Foundation. He is a Fellow of the Illuminating Engineering Society and the 2009 recipient of the IES Medal Award in, in recognition of his work as a lighting educator, researcher, and author. He serves on the UL and CSA standards technical panels, as well as committees at the IES and CIE. He also has a history with the Dark Sky community. Um, and he and his wife, Charlotte, are lifetime members, number five of the International Dark Sky Association. But before we get to Terry, Greg, we got to go light thing, right? Thing, you got to go to satco.com. That's Satco, Greg Eric. That's right. I call them the complete lighting manufacturer because they have commercial and residential lighting items from the lamps, legacy, and LED, all the way to fixtures, decorative, functional, anything you need there, and components. So really, they have everything, and they have the service to back it. Always quick to reply, great pricing, quality products, light thing, right thing. you got to have SACO on your line card, especially if you're a lighting distributor. Go to SATCO and, of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, our patrons. Greg, we're having an event. Yes, we are. Yes, in-person event. <laughs> in-person, we're back. In September 13th to 16th in Dallas, we're teaming up with the Arclight Summit. That's right. We're going to combine both things together, so it's great value for everyone. And, of course, LS Evolve, our ongoing educational training session. We're constantly putting out new courses, a little five-minute hot blast for you there. So go to neild.org. Welcome to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, Terry. Thank you. It's good to be here. And as you said, after such a long time, I know we started the discussion months ago, maybe years ago, uh, when we met uh, maybe an IES meeting somewhere, or was it Light Fair? Phil Light Fair, Philadelphia. I think it was Light Fair, yeah, a couple of years ago where we first met you. And then I've seen you off and on throughout. And, you know, one of the things, you know, most of the times we do a podcast on a specific topic, like we come up with an idea right. and we get into it. But with someone like you, I mean, you've been, you know, we kind of need to start with the top and get into the, the background on you because you're on just about everything. Mike read it there, and I want to dive more into that. But every committee I see your name on, all these studies, everything, you're always there. So where did you start in the lighting industry? Where and when? <laughs> I started in 1961. I, worked, I walked out of uh, Case Institute of Technology, as it was known by that time in Cleveland. It's now Case, Case Western Reserve University one of the few schools in the U.S. that had a illuminating engineering program. And uh, two years after I walked out, why uh, they shut it down in favor of transistors and all that. But uh, I was one of the last illuminating engineers to come out of there. And I went up the street to GE Lighting at Neela Park and uh, spent uh, more than 20 some years there uh, learning all about lighting. Was the Illuminating Engineering program set up through GE or just conveniently located near there? Uh, 
it was it was they were very much together the 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 college and uh the Neela Park people uh exchanged information we visited there frequently in our senior year and uh we met some fascinating people actually my professor had quite an invention during world war ii he was the one that invention invented the mirror with a little cross in the middle so that you could reflect the sun to uh, a pilot's eyes up in the sky and uh he and ge put that together because he was uh, at ge during the war years so there was a very close relationship oh a lot of history there and yeah. What was your role at GE exactly? What did you do there? Uh, I started out in photometry in the photometric laboratory, and it was a little different than the production laboratory for light bulbs because uh, we had a developmental group and we invented lighting fixtures to go with the new light bulbs that we also invented. So when I started, why well, we got these things that came from a nice shop in the basement, metal shop. Uh, they were built to... GE designs and proportions, but they were designed to use the new light bulbs. And at that time, it was a linear, linear halogen lamp, like the 500 watt tungsten halogen lamps that we still have today, 1500 watts, all of those. Later on, it was halogen power lamps, uh, HID lamps, and so forth. But uh, we photometered those so that we could go into a manufacturer and sell a fixture design. We always gave it to them. There were no patents or anything to worry about. And if they decided to build it, we sold a lot of light bulbs and they sold a lot of fixtures. Right. And so you did that and then you got into Neela Park and training there? How, what did you do? Uh, yeah, because uh, GE Neela Park was famous and still is for its training. And uh, we trained 3,000 to 6,000 students, so-called per year. Uh, but they were mostly distributors, contractors, agents, uh, lighting designers, interior designers, some general education just for college students and whatnot that came from here and there, but uh, full-time staff, full-time facilities. And the facility, the, the GE Lighting Institute came out of the Neela School of Lighting, which started back in the 1920s, but it had its own beautiful facility. It's still there, it's still used. And uh, we would have social programs and uh, classes that went on for a week. We had a lighting fundamentals course that went from Monday to Friday. And uh, that was often full with up to 50 people. So uh, a lot of education went on and I enjoyed it because one, I learned a lot about lighting and two, we reached out to a community which really didn't know much about lighting and distributors, of course, uh, contractors, the turnover is quite high. So uh, we were glad to do that because it, it tended to spread lighting information out into the world where it was really needed. And especially at that time with so many new light bulbs coming on the market, why everybody needed education on how to use them and what they meant and what was what their color was and how they worked and what ballast was required and, and so forth. So it was a full-time job, but we also involved ourselves with the application of light because the... Neela Park Lighting Institute was equipped with lighting demonstration facilities. It wasn't textbook lighting mm -hmm. uh, learning. It was experience learning. Mm -hmm. If we talked about glare, we made lighting mm -hmm. with glare. We turned that on. So it was one of the few facilities, but now there are several around the country, of course, that uh, uh, do that same experiential approach. 
I really like the um, going to Nella Park. You went to these different rooms, and you were constantly moving and being exposed to the right. lighting while you were you were doing the teaching. It was very very powerful. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about partnerships. You, you mentioned that you, you know you were creating different kinds of light sources. And then yes. you're going out to see the manufacturers that made light fixtures and, you know, demonstrating this to them and say, here, you know, here's a possible fixture you could make. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you have the ballast guys there and there was like these, you know, the guys who made light sources sold to the light fixture makers OEM. And then there was the channel where the, the guys who made light sources also sold into distribution. And then the ballast guys mm-hmm. sold OEM. And there wasn't like this cannibalistic fervor to do everything. It's, it seemed, it seemed, and then starting in the nineties, it seemed like, well, Sylvania bought Motorola and then Advance and Philips came together. And I think what's happened is the industry, regardless of LED or otherwise has become balkanized where you see, you know, this person is making a fixture now or a whole light source and none of its components are intercompatible with anybody else's light fixture. And I, I don't think that's a sustainable model from an environmental perspective of how we're making light fixtures. And I look back and I think what you just told me there about the light source and you know, that seems like a much more sustainable model for, for an industry to be making components and separating the various interests. Can we ever go back? And am I, am I describing that correctly, Terry? Oh, you are. It, you, you're very perceptive. And in fact, uh, things like patents were just not really of very much interest. Uh, even our legal staff at Neela Park, uh, they weren't too concerned about patents that say Westinghouse or uh, Phillips now, of course, or Signify would have. Uh, they were good friends with the patent attorneys at the other manufacturers, lamp manufacturers, and they traded patents. Oh, I want to build this light bulb, which you've got a patent on. How about if we give you rights to build our light bulb in a very different area? And so there was a lot more camaraderie in that uh, than there is now. And now it's it's a, it's like a bank. It's closed and locked and nobody talks to each other. So those days are gone. And I don't know how to get those back, but I, I fully agree with you that it was a very different time. And it was certainly much easier to exchange ideas than it is now. And do you agree with my description of like the balkanization or like these different silos of intelligence yes. and, and manufacturing that that is not helpful long term? And, you know, in terms of replacing technology or fixing things and and now you, you have an outdoor street light, you, you know, you change the HPS bulb. It didn't matter if it was GE, Phillips, Osram, Sylvania, Iwasaki, or whoever. It was all S55, right? Now yep. you're in a situation where nobody, the manufacturer is probably bankrupt <laughs> or pot. Nobody <laughs> knows what's in that fixture. It, it's, it, it's problematic for us as an industry. Do you think that there's going to be a backlash from cons- consumers and, and, and from different areas of the industry because of this? Yes, I do. And in fact, uh, at, with the American Lighting Association now, where I have a, an engineering committee, we talk about that a lot. And we put out last year uh, a white paper on the subject of uh, LEDs, a big question, should they be socketed or integrated? We got to make that decision. And the p- white paper we put out was for our manufacturers. Uh, this year, we're going to be putting out another one, which is what going to be for consumers. And I have to give credit to my colleagues because, oh, there's a a very smart person, Chris Primus, who is going to be handling the the work. I don't know if you know Chris or not, but uh, he's one of those 
good folks that's been around. He uh, has also been uh, uh, the lighting person for Energy Star for a time. So he's got a broad experience, but uh, he knows how to put that together and he did a great job. It's brief, it's to the point, it's understandable, but it brings up all those factors that you need to think about, such as, you know, do you, are you gonna wanna change the color of these lamps at some point? Uh, how big do they have to be? Uh, what sort of light distribution do you want? Do you really need to have, because of burning hours, uh, an LED that is replaceable, or can you let this one go because the fixture is gonna be used that much over the next 10 to 20 years? Things like that need to come in and you have to put numbers on them. That's the tricky part. Well, the also the categorization is a problem, right? So for example, you have a fixture that's called residential, right? Well, yep. that could be used by a builder in, a, in the corridor of a condominium, which is run 24 seven. Right, so the idea exactly of residential, right. yeah, the idea of a residential light is really not, doesn't really apply to the co consumers who are making these choices. We have a client right now, five hundred and four, you know, really slim fixtures, three years old. All the all the drivers are going on them, and we're having difficulty finding yes. that. What's your opinion? Do you think we should go socketed or integrated? I, I think we have to customize it because obviously there's a price difference and the way they're built and and some things are made to be come and gone because of their style you know residential lighting is a good example of that because a lot of it is is due to style the sales are done on the basis of appearance uh, we worry about the colors and whether it'll fit with furniture and so forth and so those styles are going to change and we might not want them for very long that's no excuse for throwing things away and making a, a pile of trash of course because we need to make them recyclable and and do the right thing from an environmental standpoint. But nevertheless, uh, there are going to be decisions like that. And the point of what I'm trying to do is to get that out there so people think about them. They don't just say, oh, I like the look of that. Let's get it. Uh, it's got to be more than that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of how it will ever change or, or get decided. You know, that, that's the hard part about all this. It's great to talk about, but it seems like the manufacturers are, are free to do whatever they want. And will they always be, or will there have to be regulation at some point saying you need to have a replaceable uh, lamp or m module or whatever we want to call it? Yeah, and it's up to organizations such as Energy Star, for example, to start thinking about that and promoting it. But the manufacturers should too, <clears throat> because many of them are very sensitive to environmental characteristics, not only of light, but of the products. I mean, are their products recyclable, for example? More and more of that is occurring, and we see what it in residential. What does recyclable mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, it it means one thing for residential, where you may have a lampshade made out of paper, and quite another thing where you have a, a fixture full of different kinds of metals and parts and lenses and plastics. Mm. That's going to be a very different problem to recycle. You know, you know how they kind of. I, I just had a thought. I don't even know if it belongs in the show, but you know how like they name eras of time. You know, like mm -hmm. a modern era, postmodern era, you have, you know, w w you know, these different time frames, um, you know, the one in the 20s that doesn't come to my head, the architecture style. I'm just thinking that, you know, we should be called the disposable era, you know, <laughs> like everything has to be like, throw it out when you're done. You're not going to have anything left of, uh, of us in a hundred years. Those people threw everything out. Nothing was worthwhile after it, if it was gone. But, you know, so you mentioned another thing and another type of kind of balkanization. I'm using this word four times already. I won't use it again, listeners, don't worry. But you talked about Energy Star and then there were, there's ANSI and there's NEMA 
and there's DLC, and there's IES, and there's all these different labels, and UL's launching a, a different program now with the marketing claims, and there's endless different accreditation and governing bodies. Who's in charge? Who's actually the head one? <laughs> I think Gary is. Hey, Gary, you're <laughs> no, in charge. <laughs> I'm definitely not in charge. I think uh, <laughs> I, I, I think you're right, though. There, there are a lot of experts and points of view. And we have to somehow simplify this. Uh, the Illuminating Engineering Society is a technical organization. And a lot of people think of it as some kind of uh, business organization. They mm. think that, that uh, pricing is, is part of their purview. No, it isn't. It never has been. It's technology. And so it has carved out a good place for itself. But NEMA and the others are slightly different. They're trade associations like my uh, colleagues at the American Lighting Association. Uh, so we may have multiple layers too. We may have retailers like we do, showrooms. We have manufacturers. We have agents. We have reps. We have all of these folks. And uh, there's there's room for all of this, but you've got to navigate it. And it does make it complicated. So I, I often worry about the fact that you have to be an expert to really do lighting well. And it shouldn't be that way because everybody uses lighting. They have to make decisions about lighting. They have to worry about its energy efficiency and its color. So we should make that much easier than it is today. If we can't bring them in as part of the lighting industry, then our obligation is to make education available in the way they prefer to receive it so mm -hmm. they can understand it and use it properly. And that's where I think the lighting industry as a whole really needs to do some work. Whew. I have a couple. I have a direction I want to go, Greg, but I want you to keep unpacking there a little bit before I have it written yeah. down. Don't worry. Okay. Uh, so, 1998, you began your own consulting company. What did you yes. retire from GE or just decide to do something different? I took I took early retirement. Yeah, I was I was just barely eligible, but it was time to do something else. And that they were in the midst of a revolution in the way they did business as General Electric, of course. And so that worked out to start a consulting business. And uh, I was fortunate enough to land a nice client, EPRI, Electric Power Research Institute. Uh, we did the first conference on light and health, as a matter of fact. And uh, I was looking at that the other day. That was in uh, 2002. So if you want to know when we started talking about light and health in the industry, it was in November of 2002. And we had a keynote speaker, and you know the name well. It was Dr. Mark Ray. And he got up and he opened the conference by saying, light is not just for vision anymore. And that, I think, because we had people from all over the world there, we, uh, that, I think, set off our, our journey to really get into this whole day idea of how light affects human health. And of course, it's still going on today. And uh, we're in uh, a time when I think we'll begin to apply it in a very practical way, design lighting fixtures and uh, change the way we do lighting in homes and offices and other places so that the health effects of that light are taken into account and applied properly. Uh, we're very close to making that something that can be a routine part of lighting practice. That's a pretty big statement. Terry. Yes, um, it is. Yes, it is. 
Uh, we've been monitoring this for for years. We we you know we've interviewed Jennifer Veach and and uh, Mariana for Dr. Figueroa and Mar and as you mentioned Dr. Ray and, and yep. lots of different people in discussions of this. And here's my concern about you know from a practical person that sells light bulbs to people every day. Okay, um, we know that we can eliminate negatives. Okay, so no you know low flicker is good, right? We know that, you know, there's, we can subtract less glare, these, these types of things. That when we take away something, we're no longer exposing people to that negative. And so it's a win. You don't have to go measure it. You just know that, the, you know, uh, the office is flicker-free lighting now, okay? My concern is, and I mentioned this to the fellow from UL, was that how do we then go from removal of negative to now saying that this is going to have a positive effect. You know, that's a major difference. It's a totally different swing. So not only are you going to have illumination, but you're also going to see, you know, more alertness or higher productivity or what other metric. Are you a little nervous about moving in from the realm of subtraction of negatives to now talking about positives? Well, let me put it this way. When you think about office lighting, and general lighting that we have designed with fluorescent and other lamps now for 40, 50, 60 years. And let's say we take an office as an example. Let's say it's in New York City. We have people coming, getting up at the crack of dawn or in the dark during the, this time of year, driving into the city, going into an office, sitting there all day, driving back home in the dark, and going to bed at night. Now in the office, they're subjected to illumination levels based on IES recommendations, 30 to 50 foot candles. They're not outside. They may have access to windows or maybe not, but that's a negative. They're living in a twilight zone. They're not living bright days and dark nights. So that's unhealthy. Shouldn't we subtract that negative? So what should we do? Not only should we subtract that negative, we should turn it into a positive and provide those bright days and dark nights. How do we do that? We know how to do it with lighting. And that is in fact, one step that we could make in terms of light and health. If we provide luminaires that provide those dark days, whether you're at home or in an office or at a manufacturing facility or in a store or wherever else, we need to have that dose of lighting. And we know we need to have it at the, at the beginning of the day, not at the end of the day. So that lighting needs to change. So the formula is pretty simple. We just have to sell the idea that it should be part of our lives and figure out what's the best way to get it. Maybe it's a walk at noon for lunchtime or, or coffee mm. break, but maybe it goes beyond that too. So we all know it's clear that, you know, natural daylight is the gold standard. You know, skylights are glazing and being right. outside. You yep. can't, that's very difficult to replace that. But you're talking about person that gets up in the condo, wakes up, goes into a parking garage, gets in their car, puts on their sunglasses, drives to another parking garage, goes up an elevator, maybe no window in their office, spends the whole day in the office all day, you know, goes back down, goes back home and watches TV at night. Let's just say that that's a common, you know, I would say maybe seven to 10% of our population does that every single day you know what i'm saying substantial number yep yeah so you so you you believe that you can actually help them with electric light 
Oh yes, uh, I don't. I don't think there's any question about it. In fact, uh, I can say that in in residential lighting. And remember, now we've got a real splurge in in home offices coming up. We're going to be in those home offices <laughs> for sure. the way we were in the in the uh, windowless area. These home offices might be better, by the way, because chances are they will have a window. But we're working right now in, in the ALA with the Light and Health Research Center at Mount Sinai, where Mark and Mariana uh, are. And we're trying to come up with new fixture designs, residential fixture designs that could work in the home office and provide the bright days and dark nights according to what we know those requirements are. And there are already companies in that business. You've had uh, BIOS, I believe, on on. Uh, uh, get a grip and and they're doing exactly i'm sitting right next to one of their uh, uh office table lamps for example so uh, it is possible to do that we know how to do it we're going to start slowly where we have numbers and definitions that we know works where we have the models and we have the cs models we have the models from the the well building institute and so forth so we're getting the numbers now and to me this is very dramatic change we're going from ideas where we talked about things like, well, let's have a color changing light bulb according to time of day. Well, how bright should it be? Well, we didn't know. Uh, when should we use it? Well, we didn't know. But now we do because we've got some numbers. We can put a, a, a sensor on your body if you want to check it out to make sure you've got the right light at the right time, time and get that record. So we know what we're doing now where we didn't a few years ago when we first started this. And just to make it interesting, there's a future here. We're starting to even discover new sensors in the eyes that go beyond the ones that we're exploring for circadian rhythms. And we know there are some other effects we need to think about too. So, uh, you know, there's lots of research going on. It, it takes almost a full career to keep reading this stuff. But nevertheless, we're finding that out. And I think that's got to be part of our lighting industry. And we've got to do it very well because it does involve health of people. And we can't ignore that the way we have for a long time. Will these results ever be measurable, though? Something that we're going to be able to define and sell uh, to the end user? Yeah, I, I, I think you need to get uh, Mark, Mariana, or Jennifer back and ask the question. And I think <laughs> they would all say yes. They would all say yes. They're all researchers. And that's what research is all about. Uh, uh, you mentioned, and, and I am on the board of the J.H. McClung Lighting Research Foundation. That is the only lighting research foundation I know of in the world that does just lighting research. Most of our research over the, the past 10 to 15 years has been on light and health matters. And we have had some of the best researchers in the world uh, do work for us and publish that work in, in peer-reviewed journals. So we want we want the facts here. We want something that will help the lighting industry make these right decisions that you very rightly brought up. It's got to be correct. We can't mm -hmm. simply just turn on the lights and walk away. We have got to take the responsibility for it. But doesn't that make our industry more valuable? Certainly more exciting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so to me, one of, the, one of the biggest events in lighting history was not long ago, about a year ago, when the Lighting Research Center became part of the Light and Health Research Center mm. in one of the most prestigious hospitals in the world, mm -hmm. you know, Mount Sinai in New York City. That mm -hmm. was absolutely a change. The medical profession recognized that we need to have light mm. as part of the prescription, as part of our daily living. 
and we're going to find out how that works. So I'm pretty positive with that. And, you know, there have been other researchers in, in, the, in the medical area, but uh, they have not had the impact that we're having now and really seeing a, mat a maturity of this situation start to affect our daily lighting lives. Now, this Lighting Research Foundation, can you, I've heard of it, but I don't know a lot about it. Where did it come from? How does it get funded? All of that. Uh, well, uh, McClung, Jim McClung founded Acuity, which is now Acuity okay. Brands. It, it uh, wasn't that at the time, uh, but uh, he was a long-term head of that organization. And to honor him as, re as he retired, why uh, the Acuity employees set up the foundation and funded it. And so uh, there have been outside funders since then. It, it has grown and uh, as a board, I, which is the position I have. And uh, I work with the researchers. Uh, we help evaluate the proposals. We have a technical review panel and we take ideas that they have about lighting research. Uh, it is structured as a nonprofit. So we're not a affiliated with acuity but there are acuity people on our board as well as non-acuity people i'm one of those obviously uh, and so we're interested in what 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 the world is thinking about lighting and we're uh, glad to fund research that puts it a step or two ahead better uh, we just funded a project and by the way this is a nice one uh, this is one on exit signs uh, you would be interested in this because what we found, and the report is just out, is posted actually, uh, just, just being posted, uh, on exit signs. In other words, LED exit signs are old enough now. you got to ask the question, can you still see them if there's a fire? Yeah. What happens in the smoke? They have had certain standards for many years on how bright they should be. Sure. And LEDs, as we know, depreciate over time. Mm. As they burn, they get, they get dimmer. They usually don't burn out. They just get dimmer. So the question is, uh, how are these exit signs doing? And the answer is, eh, okay, but you've got a high percentage of those things, as many as, as much as 20% of them, 20, 30% of them out there that aren't bright enough anymore. We should be replacing them. So who knew I, we had to maintain that? Okay, let me, I just want to ask you guys this. this that's a, that's a great point that, you know, it's one of those things you drive forward and you think, yep, we're done forever. And now you have this lurking problem, which isn't really a problem anywhere until it's actually a huge problem and you have injuries or deaths or whatever from it. But I thought you were going to say, do you guys use running man signs in the U.S. or still exit signs? There are mostly still exit signs, as far as I know, but I know what you mean. The running man okay. signs in other parts of the world, in Canada, uh, are becoming more more widely used. Yeah, I think this is a disaster. Number one, you're not supposed to run in an emergency. Like, that's like, who thought of oh. calling it a running man <laughs> sign? You're not supposed to run. That's one of the number one yeah. principles of evacuating a building. And they have this guy running on the sign. Like, he's in full stride. Second of all... Um, you know, I would say that most, I, I sell tons of running man signs and a lot of buildings are changing over because when they do these renovations, they have to adopt the new standard. Okay. The average person doesn't know what the running man sign means actually. Uh. And so you, you've taken out the exit sign, which everybody knows. And in Quebec, it says sortie. Sometimes it says exit and sortie on the same sign. Right. But everyone knows that red and that nobody knows what the running man sign means. Does it mean I should run? Does it mean yeah. that 
it's a big problem actually where did it come from because i don't see much of those unless i travel you know overseas so i don't think the canada. u.s adopted the international standard no. it might have been one of those you know international standards and canada adopted it and the u.s didn't um mm. yep so uh yeah so um greg's having a few technical difficulties there he's sending us the old-fashioned um smoke symbols but you know i wanted to ask you you mentioned the word prescription which I think mm -hmm. is such an interesting word because we have these yep. two shooting stars. One is tunability and control, individual control. And I think we both know that when you hand someone a tuner and a dimmer, they tend to warm the lights just like I did prior to my podcast with you today. They warm the mm -hmm. lights down and they dim the light level, right? That's generally what happens. But with the circadian human-centric or health effects stuff, what we see is that you're not going to have control over your light level anymore or the color temperature. How do you think the industry is going to overcome this? Well, there's no magic color or illumination level that you need to follow. That's the good news. Hmm. In other words, you've got color, you've got illumination level, you've got exposure time, you've got time of day. Those are all variables and you can vary every single one of them as you wish, but you've got to get the right dose. Hmm. So the, the prescription is all about dose, right? And, and so the dose got is to get light level? Dose. It's light level? It's not color or anything like that? No, it's, it's really energy, isn't it? Like everything hmm. else, you've got to get the energy into the eye. It's not an intensity for a second. It's an intensity over a period of time. So it's, it's got to be power times time, if you will. It's just like mm. electrical energy. So you've got to get that energy dose, and that can be given in various ways. It, be, it could be given with uh, a different mixture of colors. There's no magic there. You, you can use 2,800, you can use 3,000, you can mm. use 5,000. It may be a little different in how much time you need to spend under that light or the intensity, but you've got all these variables to work with. We're used to variability of light. The sun varies, cloudy days, mm -hmm. sunny days. Uh, places where you are in the earth gives you longer morning hours, longer evening mm -hmm. hours, that kind of thing. We're used to that, we're human beings. So you've got that same flexibility in electric lighting and you need to take advantage of it because the beauty is we've got connected lighting products now and mm -hmm. smart homes and smart buildings where we could put those in if we wish and vary them according to our needs. Maybe we work only afternoons. We don't come in in the morning. Well, we can take that into account. Hmm. The, uh, Greg, can you believe it's been 35 minutes already? I can't believe it. It went by <laughs> like that. Yeah. I got so many more <laughs> questions. Um, do you mind if I change gears away from health effects, Greg, into something else here? Uh, yeah. Big question yeah, for Terry. Terry, I want you to list, you know, since you, you can, it doesn't have to be LED, but I prefer it if it was. What are some of the mistakes that the industry has made in the line, over the course of your career where you just like your head hits the table oh. and says, oh, man, why did we do that? Oh, yeah, I know. There, there are a few pips. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think... I think the main one is we have not recognized the glare characteristics of LEDs, mm. and especially for outdoor lighting luminaires. I struggle with that all the time in any project that I work with. And certainly there are good ways to do it, but, but we ran on uh, early on when we first did the LED street lights and outdoor lights, 
we said efficiency is the greatest thing. We got to get this efficiency because we can save energy. And that was obviously, of course, you can measure that. But the fact is we built some very glaring and still build very glaring outdoor lighting fixtures. I frankly believe that's the major challenge in outdoor lighting. And I am part of this so-called glare committee that the IES has had going now for uh, a couple of years to get that sorted out. And we're making some very good progress. But glare has got to be one thing that we just don't deal with properly in the use of LEDs. And I think that's probably the most important one. Think of it. Here's this little LED. It's, it's, it's bright. It's got to be bright because you've got to get the lumens out of it. Well, if it's bright, it's going to be glaring. And it's thousands of times brighter than the average luminance of a good luminaire. Thousands of times. We've mm -hmm. got to control that. And that's why when outdoor lighting folks got wise a couple of years ago, and well, it's been a little longer than that, and started putting optical diffusers and high efficiency optics over those LEDs, that's when we began to see uh, less glare and better outdoor lighting. But you can still look up in so many luminaires today at a trade show and still see those bare LEDs mm -hmm. in an outdoor lighting fixture. And that's going to be glaring. There's no way around it. I think it's exacerbated by the early problems with flicker as well with LEDs. So you have yes. a, a glaring light source that it's also, you know, has that oscillation or um, what did uh, Dr. Wilkins call it with the fidget spinner? Greg, uh, 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 temporal modulation, modu temporal, temporal yeah. modulation. <laughs> yeah. TLA, yeah, Te temporal yeah. light modulation or TLM rather, TLM. Yeah. <laughs> So he, he was talking about this and, and, you know, I did a, an episode of um, Restoring Darkness podcast a couple, maybe a year ago where we couldn't release it because the guy was, um, was working with the uh, Epilepsy Foundation or something like that. And they had significant amount of data that they, you know, he talked about, but then realized he couldn't release yet about streetlights actually causing epileptic seizures in, in some people. And I, especially while they're driving. No, oh, so they're yeah. right, and so that these people that are, are sensitive to this, if they're driving through a high glare, um, you know, temporally modulating fixture, it can make it can make them prone to seizures. That's how bad it can be, and so I, I agree with you that the glare along with the flicker was a massive. We already knew about the flicker issue before LED. We solved it yeah. with the with the electronic balance. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I'm a little skeptical. I, I don't see if you're driving at kind of highway speeds or street speeds even that the glare from the lighting fixture is going to be affecting you that much. But I'm not an expert on that, so I don't know. But that's that's something that, if true, we, we certainly should look into. But there's no question. Glare and flicker are still main problems with LED lighting, and uh, we need to deal with those. And uh, you mentioned Jennifer Veach before. She and Naomi Miller, I think, are probably the two uh, Flickr experts in the, in the whole mm -hmm. world. And uh, Jennifer has kept this CIE uh, committee that she had started uh, going uh, so that they really exchange information. It's a great group that exchanges information on Flickr and how to modulate it and how to measure it. And uh, I can see some progress there, but we still have a ways to go to really put it into specification form. Uh, Terry, you've had a, obviously a long and decorated career in lighting. What's keeping you going? Why are you still active in this? Because it's fun. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and also there there are things like lighting quality that haven't been dealt with. You know, since the 1970s, the focus in the lighting industry has been efficiency, energy savings. And so we have neglected and forgotten about in some cases this whole idea of lighting quality. If lighting is for people, it needs to be designed for those people with the best quality that we can do. Amen. And that involves the light source, the fixture manufacturer, the contractor, the distributor, the people who design lighting for homes and buildings, all of that. And that's why I was so enthusiastic and still am about the dark sky movement, because I look at it from a lighting industry standpoint and said, that's just lighting quality. We should be doing mm -hmm. that. We totally. shouldn't be throwing light up into the sky. We shouldn't be mm -hmm. throwing the glare out above 45 degrees. We should be building lighting fixtures that provide lighting quality at minimum glare and good distribution of light. So the light gets onto the pavement or whatever else we want to light in a particular case. So so many of these environmental factors have to do with lighting quality and we should have been sensitive to them years ago um, when we put high pressure sodium lamps in street lights this was during the 1970s and 80s when the world turned orange you know that's the way it was and you saw it uh, same as i did and so did the people worried about trees along city streets <laughs> are these new light sources going to hurt the trees? Well, it turns out, yeah, they hurt some types of trees. They hurt those trees that held onto their leaves longer and were stimulated by that light so that they put the leaves out earlier because then the freeze comes along and, and it damages the trees. So we found out there are trees that can stand, withstand that better than others. And we made that information available. There was a group in lighting that did that. But it's stuff like this that you have to say is quality lighting. It isn't quality lighting if it kills trees. It isn't quality lighting if it provides glare in places where there shouldn't be glare. And I can't think of any place where there should be glare, really. Yeah. So we've got to have that kind of quality thinking that goes along with the development of the technology. And to me, that says it's not just the manufacturers that need to get involved. It's also the, of course, the lighting designers and everyone else in the chain. And I frankly have to compliment you both because I think you have been very important in getting this lighting quality story, the dark sky story, out to contractors and distributors. We've never been able to do that very well before. And that's a major step forward. I'm going to take the opportunity right now because I think I don't even want to start talking about that issue because I think that's a, I, I like, we, I think that's another podcast that I'd, I'd like to invite you to be a guest on the restoring darkness podcast, which is extremely popular. And, um, I, I, I want to kind of finish with this cause we don't like to go too far past 45 minutes. Um, and you know, as a courtesy to our guests, I mean, to our, um, our guests and our listeners, but do you believe that light pollution is pollution? Or is it a metaphor? Well, I don't know if we have to get into the into the the depth of that. There are certainly lots of people that think it's pollution. And if you're talking about something that disturbs the environment in a negative way, if that's your definition of pollution, 
then light can certainly be a pollutant. Uh, the beauty, of course, is that we're doing something about it and it's easy to fix. So it, it's our own stupidity when we don't fix it. So it's, it, it, yeah, it it's should not become, a research. It's not a research or engineering it, it, issue. Not no, it's, no, it's a light switch issue almost, exactly. as many people will say. But there's no excuse anymore for putting light pollution out there. And uh, one of the things I'm working on right now with the International Commission on Illumination is to see if we can't get started on something that controls the light emission from buildings after dark. Hmm. You know, a daylighted building is designed so that it sucks in light during the day. But if you use that building at night, it's going to emit it with that same efficiency. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's going to go right through those windows again sure. and, yep. and cause sky glow. So how do we deal with that? Well, we have not had any way to even talk about it. So Division Three of the CIE is tinkering now with how do we build that into daylighting design and interior lighting systems so that we can control it. And, and the new tool, of course, is, is the connected uh, building. Mm -hmm. with, with smart shades and other things that could easily be set so that the, the building does not emit as much light at night as it as it uh, ordinarily would. First stop, Las Vegas with that. Harry? Um... <laughs> <laughs> signs. Oh, yeah. Well, let's not get started on signs. That's another discussion. But, <laughs> but, but signs are fascinating things. And sure. the visibility of signs is something else. If you have... I'll finish with this. If you... One of my one of my favorite people at GE, who was my boss for years, was a man by the name of Al Hart. Mm -hmm. And he came up with the equal impact sign lamp. And the equal impact sign lamp was a series of lamps so that they could have any color and have that color be visible on the sign. Now, if you ever lighted a Christmas tree with multiple colors, you know that they kind of fade into a kind of an orange mm -hmm. glob from a distance. Mm -hmm. But in a sign, you don't want that. You want to see each color separately. So he, he started out with a 40-watt blue, a 25-watt red and green, 11-watt amber, and, and a 10-watt clear white. So he could have all the colors, and you mixed them in that wattage, and you went down the road, and each color came through in a very mm. uh, unique way. It, it looked like it should look. So things like this are some of, the, uh, some of the subtleties of the lighting industry. And they're buried in books and they're buried in the minds of people that have been here and some gone now for a long time. But it's been fascinating. Can't you see why people have fun in the lighting industry? Oh, for sure. As I'm sure you, as I'm sure you both do. Yeah, for sure. Amen. Well, Terry McGowan, thank you for being a guest. And folks, if you've made it to the end here, Greg, we got to talk about the gangsters over in New York there. The SACO, S-A-T-C-O dot com. That's SACO, light thing, right thing. That's right. We talked about it today hearing about the doing the right thing. And that's what they do as a company. They have the right quality products, uh, service to back it, and the people. That's what it's all about with SACO. Check them out for anything lighting related. And, of course, folks, we're, we're going to get together this year in September in Dallas, Texas. The Arclight Summit nailed is teaming up with Arclight to bring our people down there. We're going to do our own education we're also going to join up with them and so it's a win-win for everybody come on down 13th to 16th in september go to nail.org to register get your people in ls evolve you, we mentioned dr mark ray he put together a bunch of modules for ls evolve amazing 
Um, we got Fred Van Leerop talking about UV. We got Dark Skies. We got uh, Peter, Pete Strasser from the International Dark Sky Association all in there. Five-minute modules, a quick tip. While you're on your lunch to figure out, you know, a little issue in the lighting industry, put you on the path. You can find out more. But uh, our thanks go right now to Terry McGowan for being a guest finally on Get a Grip on Lighting. We've been chasing him. We got him. Um, and then to you, our thanks goes to the listeners that support this whole thing from the beginning. Nothing but love for you guys. Bye for now.